Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. As Chief Medical Officer Tony Houlihan urges the public not to be complacent is going back to basic public health advice going to be enough to change the course of our climbing COVID cases? Small changes in terms of the whole the population, the, let's say the, 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 the cumulative behaviour across the whole population can lead to significant changes in, in the kind of patterns of, of transmission that we're seeing. The HSE says it's keeping a close eye on the developments in the UK as police there probe reports of injection spiking. We discuss whether there is cause for concern here and how we deal with the issue of spiking as our own nightclubs reopen. And later, shock for consumers at the petrol pumps as the cost to fill your tank hits its highest in a decade. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. Going back to basics, to taking care while we go out trick-or-treating. Today at the Neffet briefing, Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Houlihan said he's hopeful that the current infection rate will slow down if people continue to follow public health advice and the basic hygiene steps. He asserted that the growing rate is concerning, but it's not too late to turn a corner. On my first panel tonight is Minister of State at the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Robert Troy. Professor of Health Systems in DCU, Anthony Staines. Political correspondent with the Irish Examiner, Aoife Moore. And via Skype is data journalist with the Business Post, Rachel Lavin. You're all very welcome along tonight. Um, I want to come to you first, Rachel, because you've been doing the number crunching all along on where we're at with the virus in this country. Uh, infection rates growing at a rate that Tony Houlihan, as I said today, uh, finds concerning. So can you take us through the, the figures and given the reopening, where you think those figures are, are going to go from here? Yes, so Neffet published new models last week that show they think cases in early to mid-November will peak at between 2,500 to 4,000 cases a day. It seems we're on track to meet that. There are more pessimistic projections for about 6,000 cases a day, um, but they're the upper range of the most pessimistic. So between 2,000 and 4,000 in early November, and they hope that will then fall. To contrast, our peak or seven-day average in January at our highest wave was about 4,500. So we could have cases that meet you know, the levels we saw in January, which was our worst, you know, a catastrophic wave. But we're vaccinated now. So there should be a significantly less amount of hospitalization, ICU admission and death. For hospitalization, they're projecting between 250 and 700 people in hospital or requiring hospital care. Now, at the moment, we are tracking those 700 trajectory. Um, but to contrast, in January, we handled 1,100 people in hospital at that time. ICU admissions um, were 
projected to go between 75 and 175 by mid-November. Um, obviously, today they went to 101. Um, and to contrast, in January, the peak was 275 COVID patients in ICU. So we are tracking somewhere between perhaps the first wave and the third wave in terms of where this is going. Cases are obviously closer to the third wave, potentially, potentially not as bad. Um, and then hospitalization and ICU admission, it, it, it is looking to be quite high. The question is, can we tolerate it? Uh, Anthony Staines, you know, when we talk about those figures and those numbers that we're hearing, the, the modelling has all been mm. done around this. And, and, and we heard about this. We heard it actually about it back in September as well, when they talked about those projected cases for the end of November. Mm. So are you surprised by what we're seeing and the numbers we're seeing in our hospitals, given the vaccination rate that we have in this country? I'm not surprised. I'm very glad that we have the vaccination rate we have, because if we didn't, we might have five or six hundred people looking for ICU beds right now. So the vaccination has made a huge difference at that end of it. But as the chief medical officer said two weeks ago, vaccination on its own is not going to control this virus. And it's certainly not going to control the Delta variant. So what we've urged the government to do is to take an active strategy to bring case numbers down because that eases the pressure on everything. It makes it easier to run schools. It makes it easier to run the health service. We have a lot of healthcare staff off. It makes it easier to keep businesses open. It makes it much safer for people to go out and enjoy themselves. And it makes it much more likely we'll be comfortably out of trouble by Christmas, which I think everybody wants. Oh. Okay, so the active strategy that you're talking about, what would you like to see? Three pieces, prevention, vaccination and control. So prevention is essentially ventilation, masks, COVID passports. The HSE have just started adding ventilation to their ads on the radio in the last four or five days. It should have been there for months, but it's not too late to bring it in. In many countries in Europe, schools have HEPA filters, which are about the size of a chair, and you plug into the wall in every classroom. We should have that. We should be advising pubs, restaurants, where it's appropriate and makes sense to do the same thing. Vaccination is obvious. We need to start going out, reaching out directly to the unvaccinated. And HSE have done this. They've done it very well with some marginalised groups in society at the beginning of the programme. We need to scale that up. And control is really about public health. We don't know where most people get infected. How can we control it? And we're not contact tracing at all properly. As a result, we're not controlling cases. So we need to move back to a, a model we've used for 150 years of regional control of outbreaks using public health, using additional staff seconded to public health. OK, well, we can have a little listen now to what Dr. Tolan, uh, Dr. Tony Hulhan did have to say today um, when he was talking a little bit about personal responsibility and what we as members of the public have to do. I don't think our focus should be on one particular behaviour in one particular setting. I think what we all have to do collectively as a country is look at what each one of us can do within our individual behaviour. If we can all individually improve, uh, if you like, the extent to which we are practising and the measures that people must be very familiar with at this stage and recommit to those and particularly as I say those people who have control over the environments in which we find ourselves so if if we're talking about hospitality if we're talking about clubs talking about other people's houses if we're talking about workplaces that those can be made within reason to be as safe as they as they can reasonably be okay so we're getting that message again that what we all can do 
individually um, to help this situation. How do you think that that message is washing now, Aoife? We have been hearing about it for, you know, since the pandemic began, about mm -hmm. those basic measures around washing hands and wearing a mask. Uh, do you think that, that that's strong enough now, that people are still listening and, and, and are confident that maybe by adhering to that message that's going to save us? Yeah, I think as someone who listens um, to the cab members of the cabinet every day, I would say that I have even noticed that you will hear the Taoiseach and the Tanisha all this week, last week, the week before, saying again, we need to get back to basics, you know, washing our hands, wearing our masks, social distancing, because they've seen the research and the research from the SRI has shown that people have dropped their guard a wee bit, you know, they still understand that they need to wear masks and everything else, but we are not as careful. I think everyone here would agree if people, especially if you've had your vaccine, we're not as careful as we were maybe around uh, January, February last year, you know, when it was so, um, there was so much COVID in the community. So I think you will hear the government and we have heard the government really trying to push that message again. And I think with the cases rising again and anecdotally you are hearing people saying that they are being a bit more cautious. You know, there are people, even a few of my friends who said they weren't prepared to go back to nightclubs right away. I think when people see the hospitalizations going up, when they hear of friends and family catching COVID, that's when it kind of brings it all home to them that maybe they hadn't been as careful as they were before. Yeah, I mean, the big thing is, yes, there is a personal responsibility, but is there also a responsibility on government in terms of policy and that strategy and having a really clear strategy now that we're in this endemic phase? Do you think the government seemed to be handling that or, or, you know, we're getting that clear message about what they're doing and what the plan is when we're facing these cases? I think, um, you know, members of the government would agree when you say that communication hasn't really been their strong suit. Now, you would say also that this is a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic and everyone's kind of flying, you know, as close to the sun as they can to get things done. There has been, you know, a lack of contingency planning for different sectors from the outset and we're seeing it this week with nightclubs as well. You know, we saw last Friday at the 11th hour, we are seeing a lack of contingency and that leads to bad communication. And I think that has been, you know, the kind of policy or lack of policy of the government this whole way through. And I think people are getting a bit annoyed with that. But I think when it comes to nightclubs and everything else, the government are keep trying to say, you know, they are doing all they can. You know, everything changes so quickly. But I think the public would like to see just a bit more contingency planning. Yeah, a bit more in the way of contingency plans, Robert Troy. I mean, I mean, this is the big. Um, we're, we're we're all being asked to do a lot, and I think people feel like they have done a lot um, when we when we see the vaccination rates, and we also see that you know people are keeping up with the the mask wearing. I think it's very good here in comparison, maybe to other countries, certainly the UK. Um, is the government policy clear enough about what's happening now, and are the measures in place? Do you feel to, to in this stage of the virus and the, the endemic? I think to be fair, and if you looked at it objectively, the government has got an awful lot more right than they've got wrong. Even if you look back a fortnight ago, Bloomberg gave a, 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 an endorsement in terms of Ireland as a country is a good place in terms of living with COVID. And we are now in a new phase of living with COVID as our economy has reopened gradually over the last uh, number of months. And we've been able to do that primarily because of our high vaccination rates and, you know, credit to the Irish people for signing up and taking that so seriously. I think now we do need to get back to basics and there was a little bit of slippage there. And I, I think that's understandable because people... I know, people as and that's, what, that's what I'm saying about the message. Again, it's being like personal slippage and the mistakes that we're making and that we need to be doing more. 
but, but does more need to be done as a country to, to put systems in place? For example, what's happening in our hospitals? For example, the issue of ventilation, which Anthony brought up there, that we're only getting messaging around that now, but restaurants and, and bars would say we've got very little guidance in that way. Well, no, the restaurants and, 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 and businesses are aware that ventilation is a key part. The schools are aware of it. Funding has been made available for schools to buy in ventilation equipment uh, at the reopening of September. So it's not fair to say that there was no guidance Do in relation, school, in there's relation ad, to... there's adequate number of filters in our schools and the, the, those specific heap of filters that Anthony mentioned? I don't know. I can't answer how many ventilators are in each school, but there is ventilations in schools and funding has not been an issue in terms of any school that wants to acquire a ventilation. But getting back to the I, point I, I, I was making... I think it, some schools would contend that that, that actually yeah. is a problem, that they're not I in every classroom in schools around the country. I think with respect, I, Minister, what the schools have been funded for from the department's own website is CO2 monitors, which just tell you how bad your ventilation is. And what they suggest you do if your ventilation is too bad is you apply to the department's capital funding process. There is no specific funding for portable filters that I can find. A number of schools have installed them but they've done it at their own expense. Yeah, and, and we have to look at the, the, the budget that has been given to the Department of Education uh, this year in terms of the capital budget. Each school has autonomy over their own spending resources every year in terms of the capitation grants that, that has been paid out to the schools. And at the last time when the schools were reopened, there was additional capital funding made available to schools to enable them to acquire the necessary infrastructure that they needed. So, so it's, it's up it's to schools it's, and it's up no, to individuals no, no, to, to, to make but, decisions around this, no, to keep the cases down, because we're seeing that spike in cases no, in 5 point, to 12 year olds as well, the, the which point, was highlighted in the NEFIT briefing. If I, could, if I could just make the point is that funding has been made available to schools. I know schools myself who have this, this system in place, who have ventilation in place. And I, the point I was also making is that people have dropped their guard. Everybody has. Because of 18 months, it has been a hugely challenge in 18 months for people. And there is a, a renewed emphasis and government okay. has re, re embarked on a, a publicity campaign okay. to ensure that people are aware of the responsibilities that they have. Okay, uh, Rachel, I just want to bring you in here again, just talking about the, the policy direction and where it's going now. And NEFIT certainly has shifted um, its strategy around suppression, hasn't it? Um, so how do you think we're handling this phase? So... In June, the strategy was vaccine-driven elimination. Uh, NEFA projections then, when Alpha was still dominant, and it was probably April or May, said cases could fall to zero by September. That's where everybody was so focused on vaccination. In August, Delta Wave came along and they said, we can still suppress the virus if we get enough people vaccinated and push down cases. That's what suppression strategy is. Then in October or in September, as cases leveled out and stabilized and were really stubborn, they said, well, we can try and suppress it, but we can still reopen and try and keep numbers stable. And then this month, in uh, Tony Holland's letter to minister, the Minister for Health, he said, there's going to be a surge. We're going to try and mitigate against the worst effects. Like mitigation is a strategy. We've seen it used before in the early days in the UK, which would involve light touch measures, hand washing, mask wearing, you know, back in the early days where they were attempting herd immunity, natural herd immunity. Now we're vaccinated. We're going to try to mitigate against, uh, it seems that's the strategy, to mitigate against, against the worst effects. But the question is, 
there are levels to endemicity. If we're going to accept endemic COVID and we are going to try and mitigate against the worst effects, why don't we still try to suppress the virus? Um, other countries across Europe, I know you, um, you quoted the Bloomberg index, but other countries across Europe, if we just look at the COVID incidence rate, are doing far better than us at the moment. They are keeping the numbers low. And that's because they didn't put all their eggs in the vaccine basket. Um, if we look at France, for example, they have extremely stringent vaccine pass checks. I know here, checking of vaccine passes in hospitality venues is very uh, low in recent weeks. Um, they also have extremely stringent rules for schools. Their schools operate on a traffic light system. Children wear masks in class and close contacts are isolated um, and tested. In the UK, free antigen testing is being made available to every school child. They're told to test themselves twice a week if they're asymptomatic. And public, the public can apply on a website to have free antigen packages sent to their house. Here, we're still paying for them. And then in Israel, Israel had a huge surge in August and it launched a really aggressive booster campaign and that brought their wave down. I think the question for us is what do we think is going to bring our wave down? Um, it seems to be the basics and Nefet hope that will be the case. But if they don't, are we going to see more restrictions because we didn't do enough of the other stuff? It's interesting with all those measures that have been mentioned and we've heard them mentioned here and talked about, but we're a bit late to the party with them, aren't we, Aoife? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard people talking about antigen testing. I've never taken an antigen test in my life and neither have any of my friends and the government still don't really seem to have a policy until a few weeks ago about what we were going to do on antigen testing. You know, um, like we just heard earlier that schools are getting their own ventilation, uh, things for ventilation, because there was no guidance on what they were supposed to do. This all comes back to the communication part of it. I just feel if the guidance was more concrete and it was communicated properly, people would know what they're doing. Uh, we had that very kind of infamous now Arctis committee where Tony Hulahan said that he wasn't in favour of antigen testing. That really confused people. They didn't want people buying antigen tests from Little or wherever else. I still don't know whether I'm supposed to be taking antigen tests or not, and I'm in Leinster House every day, so I think it comes back to communication. Uh, you're nodding away at all of those um, <laughs> points, Anthony. Like, there is a frustration among people that we keep being yeah. told you know, to wash our hands and it take our doesn't. own res personal responsibility here. But those key measures that are taking place, and we see it around Europe, and they're not happening here. There's intense frustration. The licensed fitness put it very well. They said we've had 583 days of lockdown. That is not a policy, that is a failure of a policy. WHO told us in March 2020 that lockdowns were not the way to control this virus. But we, we started with lockdowns are the only solution. We went on to vaccines are the only solution. But if you look at all the countries you've talked about, they've all done four or five things. So Israel brought in boosters, they brought in passports, they brought in masks, they brought in ventilation, they brought in a really active public health programme. I know the people who do the Israeli public health programme. The Germans have a very similar system. Okay. That's how we do it. Um, that's how we do it, Robert Troy. Uh, do we need to step up? Well, look, at one thing I'd say is the HSA carried out um, random checks in terms of the 
the passports and hospitality sectors only last weekend gone and the feedback is that there was a very high level of compliance with people checking uh, the vaccine passports. That's something that... But, that, so but, but, but can I just say that really something has been, resi resi has been so much resisted by so many people uh, when it was introduced, but we did ploughed on, we introduced it against the backlash because it was the right thing to do. In relation to antigen testing, it's not right to say that it hasn't happened at all in Ireland. The hauliers have, been, mm. have used it, uh, the meat processing plants has used it, some schools has used it, some businesses themselves. When the chief medical officer came out and he was at that Iraq this briefing and you know really poo-pooed the idea and has been so reluctant on it. There has been it hasn't gone and it hadn't gone anywhere and it's only now been mentioned I think at the last well, it, it, it when, is when, it, uh, around it, announcing the reopening that it would come, come it's on stream. It's, it's abundantly clear that there has been variance of opinion in the medical sector in relation to antigen testing and it was Minister Donnelly who pushed ahead despite resistance from some people in the medical sector to say that we do need antigen testing. The government now has acquired two million antigen testing, they're tests. They're going to roll those kits out to assist people. contact tracing to, assi to assist people. Do, do you people. think that there's a case for bringing back contact tracing? Well, I, I think uh, the Department of Public Health are working with the Department of Education in relation to that issue, and I would be guided by public health in that regard. So they're talking about it again as, as, a, as a prospect? Well, it, it is always under review in terms of public health give the advice in relation to the Department of Education in terms of what is to be done if, a, if, if, a, if a, an outbreak partakes in a particular school and they give the advice in terms of what needs to be done. OK, okay briefly, Aoife, just on, on NEFIT and government relations here, mm -hmm. um, is there a sense there from, from NEFIT that, look, they've, they've said, OK, we'll open it all up because that is the plan. Mm -hmm. There's also a caution there that actually, even though you're going back to work, we don't really want you going back to work. Even though the clubs are open, we don't want you going to them. Yeah. I think, you know, what we saw last week when we were talking about the reopening nightclubs, Neffet sent a letter. Um, I spoke to someone in the heart of government about the Neffet letter, and they, the way they described it was, there's a lot of wiggle room. Neffet didn't say, don't open the nightclubs. It was basically said, you know, this is what we think might happen, but at the end of the day, you still make your decisions. The NEFIT and government relationship um, is better now than it was, but there still are scars there. There was a lot of hostility for a long time, um, just read recently. And Richard Chambers' book, you know, that, that was very much damaged around Christmas and everything, the uh, last October. So I'd say that it's better now than it has been, but I do think NEFIT especially have been a bit burned and felt at one point that they were nearly the human shield for government. They got a lot of blowback at the time, and I think that's still in the ether. OK, we'll have to leave it there. That's all we have time to, for. My thanks to Anthony, to Aoife and to Rachel. And Robert will be staying with us because coming up after the break, warnings issued over drink and injection spiking as our nightclubs reopen and people return to socialising. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back. The HSE have said they're keeping a close eye on our newly reopened nighttime economy as authorities both here and in the UK investigate reports of spiking by injection. Well, to discuss this, Minister of State at the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Robert Troy, is still with us. And joining the panel is CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, Nolene Blackwell, and Vice President for Welfare of the Union of Students in Ireland, Sorla Brennan. But first, we look to the UK, where earlier I spoke to senior vice, uh, news reporter with Vice World News, Sophia Smith-Gaylor, and I began by asking her about her research on reports of spiking by injection. What I have found is the existing ignorance that is around the subject and complete lack of data that we have the minute we try to probe it. And that's not only uh, us as the media, it's the police themselves, it's healthcare services that are trying to do the best possible to support victims. What we know is that generally speaking, spiking is really poorly convicted. We know that it is really poorly reported. Victims often feel like they're not going to they're not going to be believed if they report it to the police. So plenty don't even make a report. And as a result, that puts us in a really bad place when it comes to examining new phenomena that happen. What we've been seeing in lots and lots of reports and indeed lots of viral social media posts over the past couple of months now really is that it's not only people talking about general spiking, of which there is sadly always a spate during autumn because of freshers, first time of university, but uh, claims around injection spiking. And investigations are still ongoing. The police has, have, as of yet, not really been able nationwide, uh, been able to tell us what is going on. Are these... Are these real or rather perhaps if they if they are real, um, are they as widespread as they are being portrayed on social media? And if so, have we got any toxicology yet that can tell us what could be being used? Is that part of the problem? It's very hard. A lot of it is anecdotal and it's hard to find evidence to back up that these are in fact cases of spiking. Uh, is there a gap there in the data and in the the testing to find out and confirm that these are indeed cases. Yeah, it's it's really good to hit on that because in the conversations that I have been having with experts, I mean, today I was speaking to a former forensic scientist of the Home Office, and it was quite shocking to learn how, uh, generally speaking, screenings, on the one hand, screenings will look for things they know to look for. So quite uh, familiar chemical substances, for example, but they may not be picked up in the first stage of screening. They require a second stage of screening, um, which examines it further. Uh, that may not be possible if, for example, the costs are very high for doing that kind of screening. Uh, and secondly, if, if we are dealing with perhaps new chemicals here, are the systems in place uh, to pick up what could be being used that could be different and could be injection-borne as opposed to drink-borne, as it were. Uh, what's been the public reaction to all of this? Obviously, there's been an awful lot on social media, but there's a campaign gathering, isn't there, that's um, coming to a head this weekend called Girls' Night In. 
What's the campaign trying to highlight? Girls' Night In is a nationwide boycott of nightclubs, very much speaking to the frustration that victims do not only feel with police and healthcare services, but with clubs themselves. Um, they want clubs to be far better in terms of securing women's safety. It's, of course, really worth pointing out that women are not the only victims of spiking. Men are victims of spiking as well. But as we've seen from recent reports, uh, and generally speaking, it, it is overwhelmingly women who do report it. And yet, yeah, it's a message loud and clear to nightclubs to uh, be better at, for example, bag searches, which people fearing a possible injection, obviously, would, would be reassured by that a syringe or injection may be found. Um, but it's also about CCTV and it's also about the general mindset of people who work at a club. You know, have you got people who are effectively trained uh, medically to be able to assist someone? Have you got uh, bouncers at the door who aren't going to just uh, not not believe someone when they come up and saying, hey, I don't think my friend's okay. I think they need help. Uh, it's really about a culture change as, as well as as well as sort of specific measures that they'd like to see in place. Sophia, thank you so much for joining us tonight with your insight and your, your take on that story. Thank you. My panel is still here in studio with me and I want to come to you first, Nolene Blackwell, on those reports that we're hearing from the UK are really disturbing around this new reported trend of injection uh, spiking. Yeah. And we've heard them here over the weekend as well. They haven't been verified, but we do know they are being investigated. Mm. What have, what have you heard about what's happened, especially since the nightclubs have reopened this weekend? Yes, yeah, so uh, what, what we will hear about are people who are distressed or in need of advice or support in any way after some kind of a sexual assault, uh, you know, whatever it is, or a, a sexual attack. And we have not been hearing through that about this spiking by injection. We but we've heard about it anecdotally as well. But what we know uh, just in general is that from time to time we get the reports of people who are entirely satisfied and will tell us that their drink has been spiked, maybe by drugs, maybe just by new alcohol thrown into it. And in those cases, they very often feel they will not be believed when they're told. They will not, they feel that they are not safe to do it, that somebody is just going to say, well, you're too much to drink and it's your own fault. So back to the same old blaming again. So we do definitely need to be able to address and help people who are undoubtedly uh, of the view, certain view themselves, that harm has been done to them. And you know what? It's just so clear that this is harmful. The spiking by injection should really be called assault with a dirty needle. It could be a dirty needle. If there was blood in it or something mm. like that, we would be, you know, we'd be calling it all sorts of criminal offence. This is not something glamorous. This is um, an assault. And I would hope that the guards would hear about it as quickly as we would. Yeah, so even, I mean, like I know and, and experts in the UK certainly have said that, you know, it, it, whether or not these uh, injections or needles can actually drug a person um, remains unclear, that there is a lack of clarity and data on, on, on it all. But regardless of that, um, Sorla, you've had to post on social media over the weekend warning students, not just, I imagine, around this injection reports we're hearing about, but spiking in general, because it is big at this time of year, isn't it, as, as colleges return and as nightclubs in this instance are reopening? Yeah, I mean, 
Like the, the journalist from Vice mentioned, there is always a spike surrounding that autumn time of the return to college, return to campus, that fresher cycle. Um, well, like Nolene said, there's no concrete evidence surrounding the injection, injection spiking. It is under investigation and we have had multiple, multiple claims, both anecdotally through Twitter and just down through the grapevine of people experiencing spiking through spiking of drinks and stuff. Multiple, multiple SUs have done incredible work over the weekend posting kind of COVID safety advice surrounding return to clubs and return to kind of personal safety. But we need to start moving away from this attitude we have of putting all the onus on the victims and potential victims. We need to start moving towards providing education for nightlife staff and other staff in how to handle these situations, but also addressing potential perpetrators and condoning that behaviour in the first place. Yeah, it is alarming to hear those figures when we talk about um, just um, a spike in these cases around Freshers' Week, and I know at festivals as well. You know, spiking does occur. Um, but Robert Troy, do you think that there is enough of an information campaign out there um, around it, one, and that the safeguards are in place for women so we can all go out and enjoy a night out without fear of someone putting something in a drink and, you know, a really horrible ending to their night? I think the reports are very concerning and, and, you know, fundamentally what this is about is removing somebody's consent. It's removing their ability to make their own choices and it's leaving somebody in a very vulnerable situation. And, you know, I just want to compliment the Student Union of Ireland for the, the work that they've been doing in, in, in relation and creating awareness in this, particularly in the last number of days. Uh, the Department of Justice currently are finalising their third alliteration of the national strategy on domestic sexual and gender, gender violence. And part of that is uh, developing a strategy, a public campaign in relation to the meaning uh, of uh, consent. And I think, you know, and I was struck by what one of the previous speakers said, like, you know, government has a, has a responsibility in terms of uh, running campaigns, even changing legislation to make sure it keeps up to pace with new, with new, new offences. But un un fundamentally what this is about is societal change and societal attitudes. And there is a responsibility on all of us, uh, whether it's as patrons going into a nightclub um, to keep an eye out, uh, or whether it's the nightclub owners, or whether it's the, the, the door staff, or whether it's the bar staff behind the counter, to ensure that we keep an eye out to make sure that this is prevented. And I want to ask you, Noling, about the difficulty in tracking evidence. If, if somebody's drink has been spiked, they come into you, they've been attacked, they've been raped as a result of this. Yeah. Um, you know, finding the evidence to back that up to, in order to convict someone absolutely. is very difficult, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is absolutely very difficult. First of all, because you can have just spiking by overloading of drink and all you will see is more alcohol in the system. But even if it is drugs, say drugs thrown into a drink, uh, typically they're not caught for all the reasons that, as Sophia was saying earlier as well, if they're not, you have to look for the drugs. How long are they staying in the system? Um, how, uh, how soon does somebody come? It's, they won't necessarily be coming to us first, but they'll go to, be going to a sexual assault treatment unit. Down in the Rotunda, they'll do the forensic tests, but they may not catch the drugs either because they don't know what's there, or they, nobody knows what's there, or they just, uh, those drugs are passing through too quickly. So what people are doing is they are buying drugs, uh, it's chemicals or what, whatever it is, in order to hide the fact 
that they want to incapacitate somebody in order to abuse them, be that physically, be that to rob them, be that to sexually assault them. It is just in some ways, and going back to what Storla was saying, it's as well those who do it, someone knows that they do it. They have the approval of somebody for doing that. And whoever is approving of that or, or permitting it is where we really, it's, it's absolutely inexplicable where the satisfaction is in mm. that, in abusing somebody to that extent. And it's also, I mean, the fact that somebody's drink is spiked means that in many way, in many instances, it may be hard to say, have they been poured more drink or, or that gap in data following an attack, Sorla, means that maybe uh, victims aren't always believed you had too much to drink or, you know, others. And it stops people coming forward. Um, have you seen evidence of that with students who've been through, as say, an awful ex experience, an attack, uh, and they just haven't been able to come forward for fear that it's them that have done something wrong? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, societally, we have a very strange attitude towards discussing disclosure of sexual misconduct. I think we're moving slowly in the right direction in the conversations we're having surrounding consent and stuff, but there is still a lot of work to be done. Um, the USI took part in collaboration with Active Consent in Galway in the Sexual Experiences Survey where we surveyed um, around 3,000 college students um, and some of the data we got back was that for some students, filling out that survey was the first time they'd ever disclosed their experiences. Um, students will often feel afraid to disclose because they may not feel comfortable with who they're disclosing to, they may feel like they're not going to believe. And there is a slight culture of victim blaming as well that is in place that we really need to start countering. It is nobody's fault except for the perpetrator if a sexual assault or sexual misconduct happen. The victim is in no way to blame and there never should be any feeling of blame for that person. We should be protecting and looking after the victims and potential victims instead of quizzing and questioning and trying to pick apart stories. We need to care for these people rather than doing basically the opposite. Do you think there's adequate legislation in this area, Robert? To be honest, I don't know. I'd be interested to, to, to look into it in, in, in deeper. Uh, but I do know that there is pre-legislative scrutiny going through the Oireachtas at the moment in relation to the Policing Security and Community Safety Bill. It's a very wide encompassing bill to ensure that uh, from a community and a safety perspective that any gaps that are there in the legislative framework could be improved upon and perhaps it's an opportunity for uh, the Rape Crisis Centre or indeed for the Student Union of Ireland uh, to engage in that process to see is there a gaps in this area and if there is use this as an opportunity to address those gaps because it, it is a serious offence it's an offence that needs uh, to be clearly outlined in law, if, if, if it's not, to ensure that the proper per perpetrators are brought to justice. Yeah, would you agree? What sort of gaps would you immediately yeah, see I, that I, need to be addressed, I, I would say the gap isn't in the legislation, mm. the, the gap is in the implementation. The gap is in, are the resources in sexual assault treatment units to test for the drugs? Are there enough Gardaí with sufficient understanding of sexual assault uh, available at night? So it's not really... We have excellent laws around consent. If there's, if there's non-consensual sexual activity, it is criminal behaviour for the most part. That's not the problem. The problem is how do we implement it and how do we ensure that there is enough security around people? But most of all, why don't people just stop doing it? 
Yeah, that's a really good point to finish this on. And for anyone affected by the topics covered in this discussion tonight, well, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre can be contacted on 1800 77 88 88. And we'll leave it there. And Robert will be staying with us. My thanks to Nolene and to Sorla. And coming up after the break, shock at the petrol pumps as prices hit their highest in a decade. Welcome back. Now, fuel prices have increased steadily in recent weeks, with prices of more than €1.70 per litre for petrol and €1.60 for diesel in some petrol stations across the country. The highest prices have been in almost 10 years. Here's the reaction from the public as they were filling up their tanks today. I have noticed it just creeping up, yeah, over the last year or so, yeah. And what does it cost you now to fill, fill your car? Um, I'll tell you in two seconds, actually. Uh, there's... Almost 70 euros, almost 70 euros, yeah, 68, 48, there's coming up on it. I put about 80 euros of petrol in most weeks if I'm driving uh, any far distance. So that's a lot every every month. It's just getting ridiculous, you know. Uh, I don't know what's going on, but uh, I think it's going to be cheaper to take a bus soon, you know. Well, back in studio, Minister of State for Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Robert Troy, is still here with me. And we're joined by communications consultant, Connor Faulkner. Connor, this really is your area around the price at the pumps. And people are really feeling it in their pockets, aren't they? Um, these levels that we haven't seen in, in, in up to a decade. In a, in a long time, yeah. We have had higher oil prices in the past. Not often, but we have had higher oil prices. We've never had higher retail prices at the pumps. So people are really feeling it. And they're going to feel it more as we go into winter because all of the indicators are that the world energy, um, the cost of energy on world markets is going to remain high. Oil prices seem set to remain high. We're entering into the Northern Hemisphere's winter, which is usually a time for, for fuel prices to stay high. So all of the omens, I'm afraid, mean that the ordinary punter is going to experience the pinch this winter. And I think it comes as a bit of a surprise. We weren't really expecting it. Um, and of course, we have additional tax on fuel since the budget. Um, and, and I think that combination of factors just means that when you look at the um, and you look at the fuel gauge and you heard some of the people on the Vox Pop put 70 euro, 80 euro worth of diesel into the car and be shocked at how far it doesn't get you. Yeah, because I saw the point being made that actually we haven't seen the same, same price rises um, as across Europe, but the tax that we're paying has made it higher. Well, and elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, the story this, this quarter is about the global economy restarting. And actually, you know, economists seem to be optimistic that these are short-term supply issues and that we will get the refineries working to capacity and, and oil demand stabilising a bit. And we should see a natural improvement. But all of that conversation only ever involves about 40% of the retail price that we pay here in Ireland. Because 60% of the retail price is tax. That goes straight to the government, straight off the top. And what's unique this time around is that the tax has never been bigger. We have seen higher oil prices. We have never seen higher taxes. And it's the combination of the two that sees the retail price so yeah, high. What about, what about the, the tax rise here? Because even in, in the last budget that we've seen that two cents has gone on a litre of petrol and two and a half cent on a litre of diesel. Now, the government had an, a choice there not to do that, but they went knowing that, that we have these rising fuel prices, but they went ahead and did it anyway. Um, should that have been reconsidered? 
Well, I think firstly, we're in a perfect storm in terms of supply and demand and the, the effects of the pandemic has had in relation to uh, the supply of, of, of oil uh, into the world market. That, that it's in itself is a problem. You are correct. Uh, the government did take a decision uh, this year to move ahead with um, the increase in terms of carbon tax. That was something that had been identified and, over And 12... I know there were the carbon tax increase as well, but then there, the regular increases came about on top of that. Well, what, what the government has decided to do is to, to we are committed to meeting our, our emissions targets and part of meeting our emissions targets is to uh, introduce a carbon tax. The carbon tax is a ring fence tax. That tax is going to be uh, ring fence and the money that is generated from that is going to be reinvested uh, to help people in terms of pool fuel poverty uh, to help in terms of retro retrofitting houses. We know that there has been an increase in terms of social welfare to help people with the cost of living. We know that there's been an increase in terms of the fuel allowance to help people with the cost of home heat and oil. And we know that there has been a marginal uh, improvement in terms of people's personal tax credit, uh, which will improve their take-home pay, do you think which will help. at the pump now? You'd be coming up from... Mullingar maybe this evening and, and what you're paying to get from, from A to B. Well, you know, notwithstanding all the expenses, Minister, but, but you know, it's costing an awful it, lot it, more, it, it, isn't it? It is, costed, it is costing more and it is serious. And, and there it, are and tax it, options and, around and, that, and there, aside from the carbon taxes. Uh, like there's the, the, yeah, yeah, the there, taxes that we're talking about, the there, two cent on a litre there, of there, petrol there, and two and a half cent on a litre of diesel. It, it is serious and, and, what, and what this emphasises to me is in terms of the urgency to move away from our dependency on fossil fuel, to move away from our dependency on uh, international yeah. markets and to exploit the natural resources that we have offshore wind. Um, you've asked okay. a question in relation to what I, what, what I pay. I actually made a transition myself uh, to an electric car over 14 months ago. I know that's not an option for everybody, but there is support there to help people make that transition to an electric car. We have put in more money in this budget in terms of improving the infrastructure, over 100 million in this okay. budget to improve the infrastructure to ensure that there's electric yes. chargers across the country. And there's been an awful lot made about electric vehicles and we know that we all have to make that journey. Yeah. Um, on that point, Connor, and, and it has been like we've seen the carbon budgets released in the last, and we do need to make changes, don't we? Oh, yeah. um, and and maybe there has to be that that disincentive now, uh, that uh, disincentive away from the diesel and petrol I think the to move to the likes of electric vehicles. The, the, the is it that easy? The disincentive is clearly there, Claire. We're on a journey. We're moving away from diesel. We're, we want to move away from fossil fuel entirely. That's what humanity will do in the 21st century. Right now, though, we have a lot of diesel vehicles that are still physically on the road. And when you just pump up the price of diesel, and by the way, this is done continuously by, by a succession of governments, the tax ratchet always goes up. In response to the financial crisis in 2008, there was five cent per litre chucked onto petrol and diesel. It was never taken off. Carbon tax was added on top as well. It doesn't matter to the motorist what the names of these taxes are or even what their motives are. Call it carbon tax if you want. It's still a tax. It still means a, a litre of diesel that costs 70 cents actually costs me 165 because of Irish government tax. Now, I don't believe that that helps uh, move people to electric cars. I think more likely what it does is it takes a few bob out of the family budget every single week. So 
they cancel the takeaway night on a Friday or they don't buy a cup of coffee when yeah. they go to the GM. Yeah, I'm just wondering now, you're saying electric, because, I mean, that is the big push. What would make people move to electric cars then? Well, we will get to electric. With the, we're probably looking at the last generation of diesel cars. So we know that as these cars are replaced, they'll be replaced with electric. But they were bought 10 years ago, less than 10 years ago. And let's remember that the motorists who bought them did so in response to government urging at the time. We were told that it was a clean option by diesel, and people did in droves. Now, what we found out from that is what works. If you incentivise the purchase of electric vehicles via tax breaks, etc., that really helps. If you look at the proportion of new vehicle sales that are electric... Now, the government will say there are incentives to buy electric vehicles. There well, are big grants there. There, 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 are, there, there are. There's there are grants to, sorry, there are grants to buy yeah. electric vehicles. There are grants to, to install yeah. chargers in your home. To... And there is 15% okay. of new cars sold this year are electric vehicles, which is a big increase on last year. But So it okay. does show that the well, policy we'll is have working. To leave it there. I'm afraid. I'm vehicles. sorry we're out of time on this one. And then, easy on the fuel Great. Taxes. Thanks for that, Connor. That's it from us. My thanks to Robert as well and all my guests tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. Good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.